This is the Sustainable Goat Podcast. We look to nature for how we should interrelate to the world. All the answers are within nature if we take the time to listen. But what we have to find is a reasonable way how to handle plastic. You know, consumers expect more. They're expecting brands to be more sustainable. They're choosing sustainable brands. These are the stories and ideas from those that will define a generation. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem, and this is our planet in focus. I would love to just kind of start a little bit about you. Where are you coming from? Where are you at in the world right now? Right now, I am in Leeds in the UK. I'm kind of living between the UK and Portugal, where our company's head office is right now. Previously, I was living in China for about three years, and prior to that, in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia. So there's been this transition from Asia to now Europe and Great Britain, but this is pretty much where I'm based long-term now. Well, and you're, you're from Australia. When, when did you kind of choose to leave Australia and kind of head to Southeast Asia? So the whole departure from Australia to Southeast Asia was driven by joining Okra and joining the team there. So that was around 2018 when I first joined the company and I packed up all my stuff and I moved to Phnom Penh in Cambodia at that time. Wow. What was that like just kind of landing in just a totally different country, totally different everything? Had you kind of started traveling and stuff at a younger age? Yeah. So being Australian, naturally, uh, Southeast Asia was kind of on our doorstep and it's definitely one of the cheaper places to travel. So as I was going through university and being a young adult in general, I had gone through Cambodia, Thailand, Malaysia, all those areas before. But actually moving there and moving your life there is slightly different. Um, but there was still a degree of familiarity. Yeah, definitely. And so what kind of brought you into this industry of, of solar energy? What's the interest for you? Yeah, it goes back, I guess, through a few different sort of uh, trails. So when I was in university, I did an internship with an off-grid solar company called D-Light. At the time, I was just trying to learn about electrical engineering, and this opportunity was kind of fortuitous. But I ended up really, really getting interested in the sort of social application of engineering to try and do good things in the world. And this experience left me with a lot to think about. This particular company that I interned with were building solar lanterns for last mile communities that didn't have access to electricity. And so that was really my sort of first exposure to, I guess you would call it a social impact or a social enterprise. And then after going through university and then trying to start up my own social enterprise startup after university, I was connected with Afi, who is the founder of Okra or one of the co-founders. And that naturally just struck a vibe with me. And it wasn't too long before I joined the mission. That's incredible. And so when it comes to kind of electrical engineering or just social impact in general, I mean, I think a lot of the focus is kind of on this idea of how do you build scalable systems in our current society, not so much thinking about that last mile, the people who don't have any electricity necessarily. How have you kind of seen that transition from 
you know, the last, I guess, like five years of being able to do more decentralized power battery storage. I mean, did that kind of change the game of the kind of impact you could have? Yeah. So solar and battery technologies are distributed nature. So they can be sort of placed and transported in a decentralized fashion. And that has been pretty sort of fundamental to the whole movement around decentralized energy storage and generation. In terms of really building a scalable system for these off-grid communities, I mean, uh, the, these communities, or should I say this market in general, is really a market that doesn't have any form of infrastructure. I mean, they don't even have the rudimentary infrastructure, which is electricity. And so when you enter into these markets as a technology company, you basically need to try and think about how to build everything in a scalable way because it's not easy to go out there and make band-aid fixes. In fact, in the early days, that's what we're doing. And the closest off-grid communities are still a five-hour drive from a major capital hub in a developing or semi-developed country. So it's just not easy to really deploy sort of sub-optimal technology. You kind of need to deploy really reliable, scalable tech and systems and operations from what go it's it's pretty challenging yeah do you remember kind of the first time you you went to one of these off-grid places and was kind of like hey how what can i do to help i mean i would imagine it's kind of a contrast from where you when you're always connected to energy internet everything's just like simpler i guess to when you think about just how to get water how to get energy it's seemingly simple in the developed world and then getting it off grid is quite a challenge do you remember that first time you kind of went into a community and were like whoa this is a blank slate almost yeah absolutely i remember the first time i visited an off-grid community so it was the week after i had arrived in cambodia after joining okra and at the time we were still piloting a lot of our technology with one of our first partners. And so visiting the field was a pretty regular occurrence. We were doing it at least once a week, sometimes two and three times a week, just to really uh, get out there and try to understand the, the climate in which we're operating in. And so that first trip out was essentially a four-hour drive along sort of developed, you know, roads away from the capital in Cambodia, Phnom Penh. And then we got onto an off-road section, which went for about 30 to 40 minutes. So, you know, very bumpy, uncovered road. And then we ended up pulling over at this inland lake where there were a number of boats there with, with diesel engines on the back of them, like diesel outboards. And we took all of the solar panels and batteries off the back of our trucks and loaded up these diesel diesel boats with them and we traveled across this inland lake to a small village in the middle of this small inland island which was effectively the first pilot site that we had energized and of course they had nothing but there were still houses there propped up on wooden stakes they had like a lot of sort of agricultural things going on they they made fish sauce they had animals and so this whole experience of going from the city out to this area, which just really had no form of rudimentary infrastructure. Yeah, it was really mind blowing. Wow. And I would imagine that that travel process is actually a hurdle all in itself. I mean, taking solar panels, 
battery store. I mean, everything you guys need, does that change logistically depending on where you guys go? It really depends on the geographical environment. What I just described was an inland lake village in Cambodia. There are other places that we've deployed in which are even more difficult to get to. So places in the far-flung archipelagos of the Philippines, which require you know, a plane ride from Manila to one of the hub islands and then five to six hour journeys on a boat to the, another island, which is your level of access is, is very much determined by the weather because typhoons are sweeping through quite regularly. And so, yeah, last mile logistics and operations in general is a huge part of the equation that you're trying to optimize because you're trying to reduce the amount of expenses that go into simply traveling out to these places, carrying all this infrastructure that you need to install. Uh, it's really something that you got to try and optimize for every time you set up a project. And how does it work for each of the communities that you guys deploy these energy systems with? I mean, is it a I mean, is there an educational component to it? Is there kind of a maintenance component for them to take care of everything? I mean, how does that process work? Because I mean, they haven't had energy, so I would imagine it's quite pretty much new unless they've gone to gone to the city. A lot of these communities, they do have experience with energy access, but not through renewable means. They're usually relying on kerosene or diesel, and they're burning these fossil fuels in generators or in sort of lamps to get lighting or a few hours of electricity per day. So they do understand what it means to have energy, just not renewable and 24-7 energy. In terms of actually servicing these communities, this is sort of related to the business model that we operate. So we, as a technology provider, don't service the end communities directly, even though we're very closely involved, especially in the early days when we were trying to understand the problem space. But the way we work now is we actually partner with the local utility companies who have all the licensing, they have all the local expertise, they speak the local language, they understand the lay of the land better. And we go to them and provide them with our solution that enables them to go out there and provide an affordable and reliable service. So we train these local utility companies on how to deploy our technology. And then when they go out to the village, they will also educate some local community members on how to perform simple operations and maintenance tasks to make the project more sustainable. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that's such an interesting component in that transition from diesel to an alternative and solar off-grid solution because yeah, most of most of the world outside of cities and stuff, they they rely very, very heavily on diesel. I mean, it's how how do you haul it over the mountains and get it where it needs to go? And it has a really efficient burn rate, but the problem is, yeah, you have that entire footprint that goes with it. You have everything that goes into the water if they're going across a lake. So yeah, I mean, I think does that change though how they, you know, you have this ability now, you have power availability way more often you have more power and you can do more does that kind of change the lifestyle too because what i've noticed about energy is that when you provide energy you provide also a lot of other solutions so you have the opportunity to either grow more food you have the opportunity to do a lot of other things what did you guys kind of see as that impact from being able to do that yeah it's a great question it's pretty widely known that 
or at least it's well documented that energy consumption is tied closely to a civilization's ability to grow socioeconomically. And so the idea is you provide more access to productive power. You essentially enable a community to be more productive and to accomplish more together. Yeah, so in terms of how renewable energy has really affected the lifestyle of these people, that is, it's a profound effect. So another thing I didn't mention earlier is some of these communities actually did have experience with at least electrical power in the form of batteries because they would have sort of secondhand or old lead acid batteries from cars. But what they would do, and they would do the same for diesel, is they would carry these lead acid batteries or they would carry jerry cans for miles and miles to the closest metropolitan hub to either recharge the battery or to fill up their jerry cans with diesel. When I was in Indonesia deploying a project, they were also doing the same with for water. So they would be making daily trips, probably four to five hours at least, to the closest town to refill water and refill diesel or charge their lead acid batteries and then transport them back to their villages. And so now with the mesh grid system that we've deployed at Okra and with off-grid solar solutions in general, they simply don't need to travel out to anywhere to get recharged because the generation and the storage is located at their household or within their village. There is a pretty profound impact in terms of cost savings, but also time savings as well. And this has a, a wide sort of plethora of, of social benefits for these communities. Yeah. I mean, that's that's huge. I mean, thinking about how, how much travel actually has to go into honestly, just providing the basic needs, right? That's, I think, something that we forget a lot of times when you get, you know, really out of cities is that that access, that resiliency that the communities have, I mean, it's more based in survival than luxury and that kind of prevents progression. And so I think that's that's a huge aspect of it that I think is important to hit on. But I was also wondering kind of if you can dive into kind of what is a mesh grid? What's the whole idea of providing solar and power for an entire community? Because I think a lot of people might think it's just one big solar panel and one big thing, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, for sure. So if you can compare it to the way electricity is distributed in a city, which is what a lot of us are familiar with, in a typical sort of urban electricity distribution system, you will have a centralized point of generation. So that might be a coal-fired power station, it might be a nuclear power plant, could even be a solar farm. And this one centralized point is generating all of the power and then transmitting that electricity through high voltage distribution cables throughout the city. You have this kind of artery network that spreads out from a central point. This is called what what you might call like a star topology or centralized distribution topology. So in the off-grid sense, there has been a status quo for a while now of deploying a solution called mini-grids, which is similar to a centralized distribution system. A mini-grid is simply a centralized solar farm where there are batteries and solar panels all stored together and electricity is distributed from that point throughout a village. This has been a very common solution applied to off-grid markets. Another solution that has been deployed are small-scale solar home systems. So 
small solar panels that connect to a, a small power controller with a couple of USB ports to charge mobile phones or power lighting. Both these solutions have created quite a lot of good social impact throughout the off-grid markets in the world. Unfortunately, neither of them really strike a balance between affordability and reliability. With the small-scale solar home systems, they are sort of limited to provide enough power only for lighting, mobile mobile phone charging, or uh, small power systems like TVs. Whereas mini-grids, whilst they provide something closer to what you might expect from a city in terms of power availability, they're very heavy-duty in terms of their requirement for land, the distribution infrastructure that needs to be installed because they also need high-voltage poles and cables to be spread out through the village. So what we've done at Okra is we've combined the flexibility of these small-scale solar home systems with the power availability and robustness of a mini-grid into what we call a mesh grid, which is essentially individual solar, high-power solar home systems, which are interconnectable between houses. So solar panels, batteries, and our control systems are installed at individual households, the same way you do with these sort of smaller-scale solar home systems, um, except they have much higher capacity in terms of generation and storage. But then you can also connect neighboring households together in this very sort of free-form modular way. And the control algorithms in our hardware automate the flow and redistribution of power between all the neighboring households so that uh, everything is kind of optimized. And what this results in is optimized efficiency and utilization of assets. So that is a bit of a mouthful, but yeah, you can think of a mesh grid as kind of individual households that generate and store and consume their own power with the excess power being redistributed into neighboring households via a sharing cable that connects them. Oh, that's huge. I mean, I think I think that's an important thing. Also, when you're laying out probably the panels as well, so you can maximize production all day. You know, some technically some houses wouldn't get as much power as others, but because you can redistribute, everybody can get equitable power across the board. Yeah, well, there's that. And there's also the variance that occurs between households. So firstly, in off-grid markets, a lot of the population are relying on subsistence farming activities. So their demands for energy are seasonal, but they also they also vary on a daily basis. One family might be in the village for this week. The next week, half the family is out in a more sort of rural area tending to their crops or their farms. And so they might not have to operate half the appliances within the house. And so you've got this fluctuation of energy demands between all different households. And what the mesh grid does is it automatically balances the power demand so that if, if you're not using your energy, if your battery is full, and your solar panel is still generating, that will just get redistributed to a neighboring household that needs it more than you do at the time. Wow, that's huge. Also, the idea of the power loss that goes from the distance of the traditional power plant concept. I mean, you have a lot of people think, hey, you put a big solar farm in, that's great. But if the power is traveling 20, 30, 40, 50 miles or kilometers to get where it needs to go, you're losing power all along the way. And so is there more of an efficiency in this mesh grid in terms of power loss too? Yeah, that's a good question. 
So the way these centralized systems try to mitigate against power loss is they prop up the, the distribution voltage as high as possible. So power loss is a function of current and resistance. The lower the voltage of distribution, the higher the current in order to push the same amount of power. And so in a centralized system like a mini grid, they need to distribute at high voltages in order to re uh, remove as much of that power loss as possible. The effects of that is that the system is quite dangerous to operate on. Only trained personnel can really perform any amount of operations and maintenance because it's deadly to do otherwise. And so when it comes to the mesh grids, because the storage and generation assets are located in a decentralized way at the households, which are consuming the majority of the power, there's relatively only a small amount of power that's being redistributed among the clusters of interconnected households. And because there's a relatively small amount of power, um, we can actually afford to distribute it at a lower voltage. So within the mesh grid, we distribute it at 50 volts DC. The constraint there, however, is that we can only share power with interconnected households that are less than 50 meters apart. So if a house, if a neighboring household is more than 50 meters away from the nearest household, at that point, the power loss becomes too great and we don't actually connect that household to the cluster. But what you see in these projects is that you'll have an initial sign-up of households and you're able to cluster them in a certain way that makes sense. And then additional households sign on shortly afterwards or as more sort of jump into the network over time, you can actually interconnect clusters and the entire network kind of just grows in a very organic way. Mm, yeah, that's great. And and I would imagine from from a weather standpoint too, it probably helps the resiliency of the power grid too, because specifically Southeast Asia, I mean, you get some pretty inclement weather and long power grids, I would imagine, causes a lot of outages across the area. That's really sort of looking at the fault tolerance of centralized systems versus decentralized systems. Of course, in a centralized system, you know, if you snip the cable right at the source, the whole network is going to go down. In the de decentralized system, the fault tolerance is more distributed. So one household might, a palm leaf might fall on their solar panel, which will affect their generation, but all the neighboring households are going to be unaffected by that. So overall, the fault tolerance, it's much, a decentralized mesh grid is much more tolerant to faults than a centralized system, but with it also comes distributed faults. So you could have sort of faults occurring at many locations within the network as opposed to just a single location. But overall, it is more robust and resilient compared to a centralized system like a mini grid. Interesting. So do you think that kind of the future of energy, not only in rural places, but also kind of city will go more that decentralized model for the idea of any type of down in the network? Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to think about. There are a few technology companies now, I believe, who are really exploring sort of implementing this decentralized energy storage and distribution in a more urban sort of setup. The question always boils down to what is economically more viable. When you have very densely populated areas, there is a very strong argument for utilizing a centralized distribution model because 
the utility of the infrastructure is amplified when there's much denser populations. However, with people sort of trending towards now having their own solar panel, having their own batteries in their households, basically having more autonomy over their own energy management, there is a growing sort of argument and use case for creating these decentralized energy management systems, even in the urban uh, setting. So yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting to see where it goes. I mean, we're already seeing like decentralized production of food, for example, so urban farming and these kinds of things. There's just a lot of benefits of decentralizing these types of services. But yeah, I think the beauty of it is there's so many, there's so much variance between every city, every community. And so different solutions are going to thrive under different conditions. And I guess we just got to wait and see which ones really come out on top. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I would, I would imagine for the really off-grid communities, you know, the decentralized power obviously changes the game, but what does that look like in terms of food? I mean, so does that change what food production can look like for them? Or is it kind of status quo? I mean, is do they start doing, you know, some sort of farming using some of that solar energy to do indoor farming if the weather's bad? As I mentioned earlier, a lot of these off-grid communities rely on subsistence farming. So they will have a seasonal reliance on their crops, whether that be maize or grain or some other form of food. However, with electricity, access comes a whole range of opportunities, right? And so there are some pretty cool experiments that we've had the pleasure of running in both Cambodia and the Philippines, which look at ways in which you can use electricity to create new forms of food, but also new forms of wealth. Because if you can generate more food, you can also sell that into a market and increase your income. One really interesting application that we tested in Cambodia was cricket farming. So we were able to partner with a few sort of innovative companies there and design these cricket incubators, which would take excess energy from the mesh grid and create this optimally heated environment to incubate cricket growth. And crickets are a local delicacy there. They're quite delicious, if I must say so myself. <laughs> I mean, you, you deep fry anything enough and it, it tastes great. <laughs> but these villages were using electricity to farm crickets and they were producing kilograms and kilograms of crickets on a monthly basis using that electricity. In the Philippines now, we are currently testing aquaponic systems using the electricity from mesh grids. So using the electricity to power the water pumps and the oxygen regulators within the fish farm to grow a lot of fish. Fish equals food, could also equal money if you sell it in the markets. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. And definitely cricket crickets are starting to pop up in the States in terms of like cricket protein and stuff for, for fitness because there's actually a health benefit to it too. So I think you know, allowing this type of growth in terms of innovation is huge. And it gives them such an opportunity to to actually join the market where previously they weren't able to. And I think energy is kind of that central point. Have you guys seen a change in energy reliance? So what's happening kind of a lot in the States is conversation around energy availability. I mean, obviously it's happening in UK, Portugal, kind of everywhere. It's an energy conversation. I wouldn't consider any one thing a silver bullet for the energy problem, but do you think that kind of Okra's approach to energy is going to be a, a significant solution? 
Yeah, well, solving the energy poverty problem requires a whole range of approaches, right? At the end of the day, we're trying to provide energy to these underserved communities, which not only lack energy, they lack access to things like banking, internet, just any form of civil infrastructure that you and I take for granted. And so when you're trying to ask the question, how do we really empower these communities, not only with electricity, but applications of electricity, you need to take a very holistic look at the situation. So with electricity access specifically, if we were to kind of just silo that sort of segment of the issue, it's the capacity for a community to make productive use of electricity depends on what appliances they have. So it's not just lights and fans that they need. It's productive appliances like refrigerators, water pumps, e-cooking, induction stoves, it freezes, well, like arc welders, all these kinds of, again, small appliances that are taken for granted in cities that you and I are from, but these actually create huge productivity increases and cost savings for them. So once they have access to these appliances and they see, wow, I can cook on Monday and cook enough food and store it in a refrigerator to last me a week so that I don't need to collect food and wood to cook every single day for the week, they will become eventually reliant on these sort of lifestyle changes that come with the use of appliances. And so, yeah, when we look at the situation, we really try to provide electricity access, but now we're looking at providing appliance supply chain and other other means of really injecting these productive uses of electricity into the community so that they can sustain their use of electricity and also generate productivity from it as well. Do you feel like there's the appliances are kind of getting getting to a point where they they're kind of having a benefit as well in terms of rural communities, like in terms of transportation, production, that whole supply chain? Yeah, well, as the demand for appliances grows in these off-grid areas, the supply is slowly tailoring itself to be able to service them. So now we're starting to see more companies that are specializing in the provision of appliances to these off-grid areas. And a pretty interesting trend is the increase in supply of DC appliances. So where you and I used to powering all of our electrical goods through an AC system, in the off-grid setting, there's a lot more of a focus on DC because solar panels and batteries are DC. And so DC refrigerators, DC water pumps, DC TVs, a lot of these these basic appliances now, you're seeing a lot of companies that are engineering DC appliances to try and focus on serving these markets. Wow, that's a, that's a huge shift actually thinking about the actual application of that. Because yeah, when you build a supply chain that's all based on AC and you got to switch to DC, I mean, that's there's a cost involved in that. There's a, they're of course crunching the numbers to figure out if that's beneficial for their business. But at the same time, it's kind of where the industry is going to. Yeah, and I will mention that DC appliance market is not as mature as AC appliance market yet, of course. And so you do need to be considerate of the fact that a DC refrigerator is not as economically viable as a AC refrigerator. And so the intermittent solution is for us to provide an AC interface. So in our mesh grids, we have AC outputs as well as DC outputs at the household level, which enables usage of AC appliances. 
But I think it'll be interesting to see how the DC market goes and if it's eventually able to sort of trump the AC market in terms of cost and efficiency. Nice. Yeah. And where do you find you guys have had the most impact? I mean, obviously, each one of the communities has a significant impact, but which one of you do you think that you've seen the most significant change? In terms of which communities create the most amount of impact, or rather, which projects are the most successful, that really depends on how engaged our partners are with the projects. Because as I mentioned earlier, we are a B2B technology provider. Our job is to engineer the best technology that will enable these these last mile utility companies to provide an affordable and reliable service. But they are still heavily involved as the last touch point with the end consumer. So if these last mile utility companies are heavily engaged in both the project design and the ongoing operations of maintenance, then the project is more likely to be successful. And we've seen that generally. The challenge is really aligning the incentives of one, the technology provider to the last mile utility company who's providing the service and earning revenue from from the service. And three, the end consumer who is ultimately using the electricity to improve their lifestyle and create a more sustainable income. Aligning those incentives is the challenge. And that sort of also leans on sometimes the ability for governments to provide subsidies to the last mile utilities in order to reduce their capital costs so that they have a more sustainable business model or to subsidize even the tariffs that the end consumers pay so that it's less of a financial burden on them to get access to basic amounts of electricity. But yeah, I'd say overall, we've seen a lot of, a lot of success in Nigeria because they have a very progressive regulatory environment when it comes to energy access. They're also the biggest off-grid market in the world. So roughly 80 million people in Nigeria don't even have access to light at a wall switch. So they are backed by companies like the World Bank and a whole sort of stakeholder ecosystem. So <laughs> the World Bank's not the company yet, I guess. <laughs> Maybe technically it is. But <laughs> Nigeria has a lot of stakeholders, including international aid and financing facilities that are trying to really demonstrate that this kind of open market that is focused on innovation is the best kind of approach to stimulating energy access across such a huge market. Well, and for this to for this to kind of make sense, I mean, a lot of it comes down to how do you grow a business and keep it going for the people that are providing it? There's got to be some sort of end goal that is a win for everyone. Where do you think this, you know, cost is and profit necessarily is is going? Is it going more to the company that's kind of, hey, let's let's invest really heavily in this area? Or is it the utility companies that are like, okay, we're getting a subsidy over here, we're providing this equipment for the community, and they're gonna pay us for 30 years, give or take, on the equipment. Where's that value chain in there? So when these last mile utility companies are providing energy to the off-grid communities, they are mostly providing it under an energy as a service model. So you can think of it as similar to most infrastructure projects where you have this upfront investment and you have a financial model that says the payback period is X number of years with Y percent return. 
So that's the way a lot of these companies are looking at it. They're looking at each site as a potential project where they can generate a sustainable revenue and a profit after some amount of time by deploying this infrastructure. It really, again, depends on what kind of regulatory environment they're operating within. In Nigeria, for example, and I guess all of sub-Saharan African markets, there, there are a lot of programs, a lot of financing programs that aim to subsidize the upfront capital for these projects, which provides further incentive for these last mile utility companies to rapidly deploy, but it also increases their margins. In Haiti, we've seen something similar where we've deployed in off-grid areas there. There's a very good regulatory environment that helps the local developer deploy in a financially economic and viable way. So at the end of the day, you've got a company that has a viable business case whilst providing an affordable service to people in underserved communities. I think that's a massive component of it is how do you make it work in the long term, the 20, 30 year long tail of of the economic model? You know, it's got to make sense, but it also does have to shift right now. The energy distribution model is is shifting very quickly in in a really cool way. And I think it kind of puts us on a new frontier of of energy in a way. So where do you, what's kind of your favorite part of this whole process? I mean, you, you got involved in this and it's kind of, I would imagine been a little bit of a whirlwind at the same time, but also a a crazy cool learning experience. What's kind of your favorite part of this process? I think my favorite part of the process has been the culmination of the whole experience because in our specific case, Okra started as a group of mid 20 something year old engineers fresh out of university or with a few years of experience under our belt and we were all united by this common mission of trying to make a really big change using our engineering skills and so as we went along the journey we've gone from the well i wouldn't say rags to riches but rags to now growing and that has just been an adventure of living together with a handful of people in a small house in Cambodia and you know doing electronics and software engineering in a house that only has six hours of electricity per day and then eventually growing that company into this international team across multiple countries of software developers, operations staff, hardware engineers, manufacturing in China. And then ultimately seeing all of that effort and hard work culminate in people in the field who now have sustainable electricity access who never did before. So everything between the beginning and end there is really, for me, a very enjoyable part of the experience. It's just one big challenge and there's so many angles to try and solve things from, but you always kind of find a way and learn from your mistakes. And and I think that's really fun. Totally. What was that like in the early days? I mean, six hours of energy per day. So how did you guys kind of try and maximize that? I mean, talk about trying to solve a problem because you're in the same problem. Yeah. It's pretty funny that, you know, back in the early days, some of the pilots that we had deployed in Cambodia actually had a higher grid uptime than what we were experiencing in the city. So it was, it gave us a new appreciation, I guess, for the, the impact that electricity has on people. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fundamental to everything 
we do these days, including this interview that we're having right now, electricity is the lifeblood of the modern society that we live in. And so it was really fun just being in a small house with a handful of the first sort of founding team members that that really engineered the the beginning product and the whole business model as it is today. And just sort of going through the motions of visiting an off-grid village without electricity, then coming back to a house that was constantly having blackouts whilst having all of our engineering equipment sprawled across um, table tennis tables and stuff like that. Uh, it, was, it was a wild ride. Do you think there's something special about that process, though? I mean, I, I think sometimes the startup culture, I mean, I think it's been memorialized a lot in like a really beautiful way of saying, oh, you, you can, everybody can start a startup. And yes, it's true. But also when it comes to problem solving, do you think there's something to that of packing a bunch of brilliant minds in one area and just trying to solve a problem under kind of pressure, if you will? Yeah, there absolutely is this beautiful part to it. I mean, I think the way the startup is kind of glorified in movies like The Social Network, you know, it's like a bunch of Stanford grads get together in a garage in the city and they hack out some computer software. I wouldn't say it was exactly like that for us because we were living in sort of a much different environment, but in some ways it was similar. We were a bunch of grads with big ambitions and a pretty elementary skill set, engineering skill set. And by coming together and thinking creatively and just really uh, manifesting our ambition and, and creative mindset that we were able to create something beautiful at the end of the day. And that is a really, a really special experience. And I actually, I wish for, for a lot of people to go through that, but it is also kind of scary because budget is pretty tight. I'm pretty sure I was like the first team member to get a salary on like the first month of working there. A lot of people we're kind of just winging it for a while. Not a lot of people, I should say, sorry, like a few of the, the team members that joined earlier than I did. So it is it is a hustle and it, it is a risky hustle, but I guess we're all young at the time as well. So that kind of helped the situation. Yeah. And do you think that kind of goes a little bit back to kind of this idea that you can you can be mission-driven and that will drive things forward? I mean, how much were you guys mission driven in this process because when you when you do hit those hurdles right you every startup does they're kind of like oh man budget let's be conscious of this this one has to come through whatever that is i feel like the mission is the, the easy thing that you can kind of come back to was that kind of something you guys came back to yeah well being mission driven is essential even now our team is only 31 or 32 people we still screen heavily for a cultural alignment with the greatest social mission because we are not some um, blue chip Fortune 500 company that can pay executive salaries to everyone. And so it's really important to us that people that are joining are not just, of course, everyone needs to pay their bills. It needs to have a sustainable income, but we are still for the most part, a startup and, you know, we're transitioning into high growth now, but it, it's important that this sort of early foundational team is mission driven because that is what sustains through all the other ups and downs that come along with the startup journey. And people that are not mission-driven kind of will filter themselves out along the way very quickly. When things don't go right, they'll, they'll drop off. 
But yeah, we've been quite fortunate in having a lot of very passionate mission-driven people join us so far. Nice. And and what's kind of the goal for Okra in the future? Where do you guys kind of want to expand? Is it geographical? Is it in each location, grow more? What's kind of your objective as a company? There are still roughly 760 million people around the world without electricity. It's a huge market for us to tackle. Right now, we're really just trying to focus on securing market domination in a small set of markets in Africa and in Latin America. And once we have secured that base, we can really look to try and expand into other markets where it makes sense to do so. In the really broader sense of things, I mean, at the core of our mission, we want to provide electricity access, but the extension of that is empowering people to have opportunities because that's what electricity access really represents is the opportunity to to learn, the opportunity to create a business, to be entrepreneurial. And so if we really hammer in the electricity access part of the problem, there are a lot of directions that we can kind of go in to try and foster the growth of opportunity in, in these communities that are, for the most part, pretty much disconnected from the modern economy and the modern society right now, because they don't have electricity, they don't have banking, and they don't have internet access as well for for a lot of the areas. So yeah, there's I think there's quite a few directions that we could look to expand into. Yeah, where do you guys choose? How how do you go about the process of choosing a location of where you guys are going to deploy? Because um, I mean, you guys are operating very much on another side of the world than Latin America. What does that process look like for you guys? There are a few criteria that we vet each market by. Some of the key ones are, well, I'd say the most fundamental one is the regulatory environment. So is the government and the authorities there so really focused on trying to improve the energy access situation or is it not such a high priority for them? Or maybe there's, there's, there's other conditions which prevent them from really creating conducive environment. So the regulatory situation is really key the second thing would be the market size itself so in nigeria as i mentioned there's you know roughly 80 million people without electricity who are spending so much money on diesel and kerosene already so we know the demand for energy is there there's huge spend on it already so that that's another sort of green light for us to go in and then another really important thing is is there a stakeholder ecosystem? So is there an ecosystem of private utility companies who are actively really trying to move the needle? Or is is it a pretty bear market? So we look at some of these key criteria to really assess which market makes sense for us to jump into. Yeah, the municipality government, I mean, that's interesting that that's kind of the first hurdle because I would imagine as as much as you want to distribute these all over, you hit roadblocks pretty quickly. And do you feel like that's the biggest hurdle that you guys have over even the utility companies wanting to do it? Definitely it is. We experienced that in Southeast Asia to some extent. Whilst the the regulatory environments there are doing very well and trying very actively to, to improve the energy access situation, the fine print in terms of what we could and can't do was not really conducive to us um, scaling our business there rapidly. And sometimes it, there there is also 
just added bureaucracy in these areas, which is necessary because, you know, you're talking about providing utility service, which is traditionally something that governments provide. But in countries like Nigeria, they've kind of just opened up the market and said to people, you know, come forth with your innovative solutions and take advantage of this regulatory environment that encourages that and encourages you to deploy these solutions quickly. And we'll see which one comes out on top just based on the results. So that's the kind of vibe that we really appreciate in in a market. Well, yeah. And I would imagine it brings a lot of fresh energy to the market, whether it's ideas on energy, whether it's ideas on I mean, policy, business, I mean, it kind of opens the door for a lot more opportunity versus just, we're going to say yes or no. Yeah, for sure. In these kinds of environments, you see a lot more entrepreneurial activity, you see a lot more innovation come through. And that's, that's great for us too, because it means there's other people who are stirring the pot in the same direction. And there's opportunities for partnerships. And it, in a way, it also validates the market because it shows that there are a lot of active players who are really trying to make an impact here. And there's there's big momentum behind that. And so it, it's only a good thing when you invite all these sort of innovative players into the market. Awesome. And where do you kind of see your focus going over the, over the coming years? My personal focus over the coming years is to really try and optimize internally the team that we have so that we can be as productive as possible. I mean, my personal journey at Okra has been very much a band-aid kind of role so far. When I joined, I was an engineer. I quickly moved into areas of manufacturing and marketing, HR and service delivery as well. And so I kind of got this broader perspective of just trying to coordinate things and make things happen. I don't have the same frontline experience that a lot of the people on the team do. And like everyone on our team is incredibly intelligent and they're really, they're really the experts that are making all the wheels turn. But I'm trying to focus on supporting that sort of innovative team growth and high efficiency operation so that we can create the biggest impact possible. Yeah. I mean, that's incredible. And I, I think that for, for a company, that's a key role to have, especially to be able to support everybody that is working in whatever silo they're super focused on. How do you give them the tools, the assets, the support, everything to kind of continue to grow in the best way possible? Yeah, it is necessary. It's not always the most glamorous type of work, but you know, just having sort of clear lines of communications between teams, having the tools, the software infrastructure, all the sort of basic forks and knives and spoons that you need to do daily work. That is really sort of, that underpins everyone's ability to put out good results. So we got to try and make sure it's as good as possible. That's awesome. So you don't travel quite as much as the rest of the team, but you've definitely done your fair share of traveling. Where's your kind of favorite place to enjoy nature? Whole planet. Wow. <laughs> that's a... I know. That's that's a hard question for sure. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a curveball. I'd really have to think about it. I mean, I've seen quite a few beautiful places over the years just by living in different countries and even traveling as a university student. Oh, okay. So I'd say <laughs> probably pretty high up on the list is the Himalayan region. So up around so the 
the high altitude areas of India, Nepal, and I've also seen it from the China side. That's a really awe-inspiring natural landscape. I don't know, the question always pops up, like, are you a beach or mountain person? I guess my answer says I'm more of a mountain person, but yeah, I think there's there's just so many beautiful landscapes, especially around the coastlines as well. So I've seen, obviously, a bit by living around Southeast Asia. Yeah, that's a really hard one. I When I was in university, I traveled through South America as well. I'd say maybe like that sort of Patagonian Ch- Chilean landscape which kind of combines oh you know what actually sorry if i have to really sort of say <laughs> i'd say new zealand probably has oh. some of the nicest nature i've ever i've ever witnessed wow you're also a climber too i mean does that i've climbed for quite a while too it it takes you to some places that you don't normally get to see has that kind of helped expand that vision too yeah rock climbing for sure has taken me to you know places off the beaten path you're always going out to different areas where where other rock climbers have put bolts into the rock and i think i i've seen like a lot of beautiful places that i would never normally see if i if i wasn't rock climbing so that's definitely been a big part of my sort of natural experience of late as well i didn't know you were a rock climber by the way yeah <laughs> that's cool uh living in boulder colorado it kind of comes with the territory you're either a climber or some sort of outdoor something yeah yeah usually it comes with it but yeah i mean so when you're out climbing what i've what i've noticed is you get this you have the approach you have all the things that you end up doing whether you're camping whatever it is you find yourself really immersed in nature i think in a very different way because you have this trust you know whether it's with the rock when you're climbing it or you just have this appreciation for where you're at do you feel like that's aided in kind of the mission focus that you guys have in terms of preserving the natural world in terms of energy production, but also providing more opportunities for people to explore these places. These areas that we are energizing are in places that tourists would simply never get to because there's no civil infrastructure there at all. And I haven't personally been to all of the places. I've been to some of them, but a lot of my close friends and colleagues have made made these arduous journeys out to these areas. So a good example is in the Philippines, some of those far-flung archipelagos that required days of travel over air and ocean, they are in some of the most pristine areas that you'll ever see because not a single tourist has stepped foot on those areas. I think there is a lot of thinking that we need to do when it comes to the preservation of nature and climate. Obviously, that's a very important kind of notion for us. And I think we are in some ways assisting with that. I think an example is, you know, with access to renewable electricity, you don't need to rely on things like fossil fuels or biomass as much. So in Cambodia, for example, there was heavy reliance on burning either rubbish or burning wood or burning dung in order to cook or have lighting. And so by transitioning them to renewable energy, they're, they don't really need to, to do these things. But yeah, it's in terms of preserving the global climate, there's still a lot to be done. And certainly transitioning people in off-grid communities to renewable energy is not going to be the silver bullet that makes it happen. But it certainly, I think, does make make its mark. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I think it's it's kind of a multi-pronged approach to kind of solve solve the problem, but also I think there's a lot of 
preservation that can come through innovation. So whether it's preserving the ideas that we've always functioned under, I mean, for example, everything's going back into glass. We used glass a long time ago. It's how do we take those preservation of those ideas that we've had over centuries and decades that worked and innovate on those same concepts in a way that will have less impact in, on, the, on the planet, but more impact on society. So I'm, I'm fascinated with that idea of how do we preserve through innovation. Yeah, for sure. It's really important, I feel, that we keep preservation of the environment and the climate at the forefront of everything we do. By energizing these off-grid communities, it is our goal that we can actually decouple their socioeconomic development with usage of fossil fuels. Because a lot of these societies that have come a long way owe it to their consumption of fossil fuel and industrial processes. And so when you think about 750 million people around the world who don't have access to banking, internet or electricity, who are inevitably going to be connected one day, you got to think about what kind of environmental impact they're going to have in the same way uh, Western nations or developed societies have, have had an environmental impact getting to where they are today. So I think to some degree, we'll be able to decouple their development from a carbon footprint by enabling them with renewable and sustainable technologies. Mm-hmm. 100%. Final question. Do you remember your first sustainable purchase that you made consciously where you're investing in something because you either know the alternative impact, you know it's going to last for 40 years, or that you went, hey, this is a company I support because they have a they have a bigger vision? I don't know if I can remember my first purchase, but going back again, I think, to my experience in the Himalayan areas, I remember purchasing a lot of hemp-based clothing. So there was this kind of big topic of cotton being unsustainable and people trying to move to organic cotton. And then being in those areas, there's just naturally a lot of hemp material. So a lot of backpacks, a lot of textiles, clothing. And so I picked up a few like hats and bags and and pieces of clothing made from hemp. And that that always stuck with me as a good sustainable purchase. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's a super strong material, lasts a super long time. It's starting to catch catch a little bit more momentum, I think, West in terms of use as a textile. Yeah, it's incredibly resilient. That's awesome. Not too comfortable, I'd say. It hasn't reached the uh, <laughs> yeah. the soft cushiness that cotton has, but... I think as, as like a hat or a backpack, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Totally. Yeah. The, the softness is always the challenge for sure. Well, very cool. Callum, thank you so much just for taking the time. I love what Okra Solar is doing. Your impact is huge. And I think that the impact is only just beginning because I think you'll see over a 15, 20 year impact. That's where I think all the efforts that you guys are putting in now is just exponentially going to show the difference. Yeah, I hope so too. And thank you so much for having me on the Goat Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sustainable Goat Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kassinem. With each episode, we can further define what it means to create a truly sustainable and resilient future. I think the new status is to show that that you actually care. You want to drive change and you want to be part of a sustainable future. People fight for what they love. Let's really all start for small but significant shift in the way we live, we consume, and we plan our life. Join us 
at sustainablegoat.com.